Well, good evening once again. I um, thank Dean for those, those preparatory comments. And I, I've, been enjoying, I've been enjoying some of the discussions, too, like part of what happens visiting a church and uh, you say some things and people begin to respond and there's conversations that come out of that. And I, I, really, I really enjoy those conversations. It's one of the things that um, makes weekends like this worthwhile for the speaker, I think. So I, I encourage that. I enjoy that. And, and there's a lot of good questions, I think, being provoked. Things like this. Um, how, much, how much do we expect our hearts to change? That you know, God has a claim on our hearts. Our hearts work best when they're when they're cooperating with God. But how much can we expect of that? And it's true. You know, you, you have to you have to say this is a claim God has on our hearts now and in the future. There's an already. There's a not yet. Okay. There's the way in which our our the way Colossians puts it so beautiful. I think it's chapter three. Um, our our lives are hidden in Christ. Our self, our truest identity is in Christ. I can't explain all of what that means except to say that our truest heart is hidden in Christ. And it's something that he gives us as a gift. And when we see him, we shall be like him. And now we see that in part. There's still some cloudiness. So we have to have patience with ourselves. We have to have patience with other people too. That doesn't change. That doesn't change the reality. We're going after it, right? But, but you have to recognize that there's parts of us that are hidden that are not yet known until Christ shows them to us. We're talking some about the nature of evil, its source. Um, I've had this question. This one's intriguing. Can a heart be so twisted? Can its love be so twisted that it loves nothing anymore? But you, can, you can learn to hate yourself, right? Call it self-loathing. Uh, can a heart be so twisted that it doesn't even love itself anymore? And what do you have left then? But that, that, that can take you kind of dark but interesting places as well. Questions, there's lots of good questions. And I'm enjoying those. We'll continue to identify um, bridges and barriers to that kind of soft hearted heart that knows the world and sees it truly like Christ does, that seeks out Christ's likeness, the kind of heart that is soft toward God and which everything it knows about itself is rearranged because of its proper knowledge of God. We're going after that. We're, we're, we're seeking bridges to that, and we're also identifying barriers. And the barrier... Today is one I'm going to make the case. We all struggle with this, and we all have the possibility of it. It's kind of a species of self-love, okay? But it's pretty specific, and um, it's a little more practical, too. So I'd like for us to begin by raising our hands. Everybody, one hand up, please. Thank you very much. Now keep your hand up. I'm not going to... Just keep it up until you disagree with a statement I make. Okay, I'm going to make some statements here, three of them. Keep your hand up until you disagree with one of the statements I make here. Statement one, at least once in my life I felt on purpose or not, whether on purpose or not, disappointed, 
or hurt by somebody. Keep your hands up unless you disagree. Can you really keep your hands up? You've been hurt by somebody. You've been disappointed. Now, here's another statement. At least once in my life, I felt like somebody was unfair to me. Lots of hands. Third, at least once in my life, I caught myself distrusting the motives of someone else. In other words, I said to myself, self, that person seems to have something in it for you. Watch out. Okay, now point at yourself. Hands are still up, point at yourself. You can point around just as easy here, but to point at yourself, you're capable of resentment. I'm capable of resentment. And then you could, you could just as easily point at everybody else because we've all had our hands up. You can put your hands down now. Thank you. We're capable of resentment because I'm not really sure how an honest person could look at all of those statements and not keep their hand up. We've been disappointed. We've felt like people have been unfair. We've found ourselves distrusting the motives of people. It's something we do frequently as humans. And that makes us capable of at least the beginnings of resentment. And resentment, you'll hear me You'll hear me making the case of presenting resentment as a barrier, especially to neighbor love. It's hard to love people that you resent. The two don't coexist very well. Okay? And resentment can become a form of idolatry. Okay? It, it can cut us off from proper God love. So it's, this is one that's it's very common. We're all capable of it. There's others we could go after. This is one that we're looking at tonight. We're capable of that. You could see resentment as a species of self-love that cuts us off from proper love of God and neighbor. In the internal story we tell ourselves, the story of resentment goes something kind of like this. That person, that person, whoever's been unfair to us, whoever we feel cheated by, whoever we resent, that person has something that I want. I think they could give it to me if they wanted to, but they refuse. That's the story of resentment. That person has something that I want. I think they could give it to me, but they refuse. Okay. And resentment, it, it can characterize, it can shape all of all human relationships. Children can resent their parents and parents their children. Siblings can resent siblings. Um, wives, husbands, husbands, wives. A wife might say something to herself and sometimes she'll say it out loud. I work, I work so hard to keep this house clean. Why does he always, whatever it is, you start using those always statements. That's a sign. Um, or, or a husband could say something to himself like, she doesn't realize how tired I am when I come home. Why does she always have to rag on me about her clean house? I don't know. There's the pattern, though. 
Church leaders can become resentful. We're not above that. And it can be petty, too. And people in congregations can become resentful if they're not led well. Or even if they are led well. It's possible. It's possible. We can even be resentful of God. We can be resentful of ourselves. We call that self-loathing. We're all capable of resentment. It can, it can characterize our relationships. Resentment. You might say it's justified lust. That person has something I wish I had, I think I should have it, they're not giving to me. It's justified lust. It's this rationalized feeling that something is wrong, something is off, and it's their fault. And if it's allowed to grow, it brings dullness, it brings distortion, it cuts us off from God love, it cuts us off from neighbor love. We say sometimes resentment, it's like drinking poison and then waiting around till the other person dies. You know? So Hebrews 12, 15, it comes as no surprise, it speaks against resentment, it encourages us. I'll be starting with Hebrews 12, 15, we'll be ending with this as well. This is our touchstone for the night. It encourages us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's the positive. Strive for peace and for holiness. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And right away, you notice some root of bitterness, and I'm using the word resentment. Resentment is the more, with a modern English word, it overlaps a whole lot with the root of bitterness. We'll get there. We'll get there for now. We're using the same, different words for the same kind of thing. Now, on our property, we have um, some plants we like and some plants we don't. We have a garden we try to maintain, and we keep those plants well. And there's also Mottaflora rose. You have Mottaflora rose down here? It was, I guess, it brought in in the 60s and 70s. It's thought to be a good idea for fence rows and hedges and things like that. And it's true, it does grow very well. It grows very thick. It has extremely sharp briars on it, and you can't kill it. It's very difficult to kill, I'll say that. Uh, and it hurts. You get pricked by it. It's, it's really sharp. It's a nasty, nasty, noxious, invasive species. And it spreads easily because it, it can spread by either seeds or canes. The cane just comes against the ground. There, there can be another Mottiflora rose plant, and the cycle goes on. Because of that, when you see Mottiflora rose, when we see Mottiflora rose on our property, I tend to be, treat it, if I've got time and space, you want to treat it aggressively. You want to root it out. It's a nasty, noxious, invasive species. It can cause a lot of harm. And the root of bitterness is kind of like that. Once it takes root, if it's allowed to grow, it's hard to root out. Thus the instruction. See to it no one fails to obtain the grace of God lest any root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Okay. The writer of Hebrews here, he's writing to this church. He says, strive for peace. Strive for holiness. And watch for everyone to obtain 
this grace of God, this, and this is a bridge, this is a bridge to our love for God and neighbor. That's the bridge. Strive for peace, strive for holiness. Watch for everyone to obtain the grace of God. Do that and root up the root of bitterness. There's the barrier. So what does this look like? What's this root of bitterness like? How do we identify it and how, once we've identified it, how do we uproot the root of bitterness? We'll lay aside Hebrews for a little bit and we'll come back to it. Take a little detour here and, and we'll talk a little bit. So what is this root of bitterness and what does it look like? Then we come back, okay? Now last month I was... Um, reading through 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel has, you know, the story of Saul, King Saul. And I'm struck by how Saul can provide for us an example of resentment and how it operates. 1 Samuel 17, it tells how Saul first met David in the valley of Elah. And across the valley, there were the Philistines, and representing the Philistines, there's this giant by the name of Goliath. And here comes David. And, and David was so much of what Saul should have been, but was not. Saul was handsome and he was tall, but the Spirit of God was on David. And, and, and here's David and he comes and he sees this Philistine, and this Philistine, he's insulting God, and he's insulting God's people, and, and Saul is kind of powerless, though he's tall and he's handsome, <laughs> but he can't really respond right now. David had something that Saul should have had, and that was the Spirit of the Lord. And David, he goes and he wants to win back the honor of God and God's people, and then there's this encounter and, and David, he defeats the Philistine, and, and he doesn't need any help from Saul or Saul's armor. And whatever mission, First Samuel goes on and describes that whatever mission Saul sent David on, he was successful. Um, so David was promoted. And after a battle, David and Saul, they come home, and the women, they greet them singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And from that time on, it says, Saul kept a close eye on David. By 1 Samuel 18, 10 to 11, Saul tries twice to kill David by pinning him to the wall with a spear. And this begins this long struggle where Saul tries to kill David and then there's some kind of reconciliation, and Saul feels bad for that, and he apologizes, and he makes some promises, and then he falls back into resentment again, and he tries to kill David again, and then David runs. And then there's some kind of reconciliation, and then Saul is overcome by anger and fear once again, and he chases him all over Israel. And this defines the relationship of Saul and David. And it defines the kingship of Saul. So I have to ask, you know, what, what would motivate Saul to act like this? And, and the, more, the more I've 
engaged with this story, I think there's here at least three parts of Saul's motivation, okay? You look behind the story and you ask yourself, what's motivating Saul to act this way? I think there's at least three things, three things that are happening which drive this crazy cycle, <laughs> this crazy murderous cycle of anger and fear forward for Saul. And it begins, that cycle, with injury. This will help us learn about resentment, okay? What work make what makes it work? Some kind of injury. Resentment begins here. And resentment, when we feel the stirrings of resentment in us, it alerts us that there's been some kind of injury. That injury could have been intentional. Somebody actually trying to hurt us. It might have been unintentional. David was just being David. And Saul felt injured. Right? It's possible for us to invent injuries. But overall, there's some, there's some kind of disappointment. There's some sense that the other person has something that we want, remember? And that they could give it to us, but they're withholding it for us. They're withholding it from us, that is. They're holding it back. What did David have that Saul wanted? When was their injury? I think, I think it really comes to that point, doesn't it, in the story when the women come out and they're there celebrating David? And this was a turning point. This was a turning point for Saul. That was the injury. We could, you could spend time. Was it a real injury? Was it not? Does that matter? Does that really matter? Because for Saul, that was, that's the trigger. That was the injury. He felt it. And that's where it begins. There's some kind of injury. And then another word. The injury is screwed in by inequality. Because the reality is here that David had things that Saul didn't have. There's inequality, right? The kingdom was being taken from Saul. Saul knew this by this point. The kingdom was being taken from Saul, and David was the anointed. And Saul already struggled with insecurity. You remember how when he was anointed, he was called to be king? And what's he do? He hides. He, he struggled with that calling. He was kind of insecure. David didn't hide. David was bold. There was inequality. Did it have to be this way? Did that inequality between David and Saul, did that have to define their relationship? Did that have to screw in even more the kind of injury that Saul felt? Well, I don't think it had to. Uh, David and Saul, they might have found a way to work together, and sometimes they did. Occasionally, they did. But Saul was consumed by this sense of inequality. He was consumed by the sense that this young guy, David, has something I think I need. And he could do something about it, and he's not. He seemed to obsess about it, really. 
And for you and I, isn't it true? Isn't it true that there is real inequality among people? It's the reality that some people have things that you or I don't have. Um, and at the same time, if there isn't inequality, we tend to invent it. We tend to. Because many times we see things, we see inequality where there might not actually be inequality. Maybe your coworker, for instance, is deliberately withholding a compliment from you because he likes to hold that kind of power over you. He likes the inequality. Maybe that's what's happening there. Maybe he wants to cause you injury. Or maybe he's just the kind of guy that doesn't give out compliments very much. And maybe your need to see some form of inequality there says something more about your own insecurities. It can work both ways. You see that. Like sometimes people do try to injure us. Sometimes they try to hold inequality over us. But sometimes we need to invent that too. We have to, we have to watch for that. So there's inequality. There's injury. Finally, there's evidence. And it's like Saul here, you know, he, he, he felt the injury, he obsessed about the inequality, and starts to look for patterns of evidence. What's his next move? What's David going to do next? David had the upper hand, he felt, and he got more credit than Saul did, and he couldn't seem to let go of the suspicion, Saul couldn't, that David was going to overthrow him. What more could he get but the kingdom, he asks. He's got all the credit. He's got all the power. What more could he get but the kingdom? And the more David succeeded, the more Saul was afraid, the more evidence he began to accumulate. And when you or I, we feel that first brush of resentment with some kind of injury, um, that's natural. It can be appropriate. It's just your heart letting you know that there's been some kind of injustice, that there's been some kind of injury. The, the problem, the problem here is when this cycle gets going. And if it's just allowed to go unchecked, that's the root of bitterness, okay? And that root starts to grow if it's just allowed to kind of go unchecked, if it burrows its way in. That's where that root of bitterness is. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to think, like, if this is just allowed to run in somebody's life unchecked, if that's the cycle that governs their life, it will destroy their life. It's going to distort them. It's going to form them up around this suspicion, this insulted, unequal, evidence-accumulating perspective on life. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination either to think of what this pattern would do if it's allowed to run unchecked in a community or in a nation. It's 
take as a quick example some of what's happening in Gaza and Israel. Okay? These patterns run amok in cultures, and they destroy them. Back to Hebrews 12, 15. And this is the pattern. This is what it looks like. That's the root of bitterness. Okay. First in the King James Version, again, I think this adds a little bit. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many to defy or in ESV Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord and see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And here in ESV, it's a little clarifying, I think, the root of bitterness, it's in quotation marks. Okay? That's your invitation to burrow in and it's a, it's a phrase that means something probably in the original language, and they're putting it in quotes to say, like, look closely, we're quoting this for you, but you might need some additional context. Go after it. So let's go after it just a little bit. In biblical times, a poisonous plant was called a bitter plant. Okay. Poisonous plants, bitter plants, they're alive, but they have this really nasty habit of killing everything around them. Let no root of bitterness, this cause of trouble, spring up and by it many are defiled, corrupted, injured, killed. And the root of bitterness, it shows up in, um, in Deuteronomy as well. In Deuteronomy, you remember, you know, De Moses is here and he's reviewing the covenant with God's covenant people. And in Deuteronomy 29, he says, make sure there is no root among you that produces bitter poison. And, and here, this particular bitter poison he seems to have in mind is idolatry in violation of the covenant. And throughout the Old Testament, bitterness and poison, they refer to unfaithful actions that violate the covenant or to their punishment. And this is carried forward, this bitterness. It's carried forward in Acts 8.23. Uh, Simon the sorcerer, he saw the disciples, they're performing miracles, and he wanted that power. I was attractive. He wanted that. And he wanted the disciples to give it to him. They had something. He thought they could give it to him. He wanted it. Maybe he wanted to enhance his career. Maybe he thought God was a commodity, you know, that could be bought or sold. And he says something along the lines of, hey, you know, hey, I'll make you an offer. What's that worth to you? And while rebuking him, Peter tells him to repent, and he adds to it, I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Simon, the sorcerer, he saw there's some kind of inequality here. He saw that. <clears throat> and he had a way of setting it right. His way of setting it right was that he's going to offer cash. And um, his wickedness, his wickedness that Peter calls out, was that he had the wrong way of doing that. Um, Peter calls it out as bitterness. 
he failed to acknowledge that the Spirit, it's a free gift. It can't be bought. It can't be sold. Now, taking it as a whole here, the story of Saul in the background and with Acts 8.23 and the four in Hebrews, bitterness and the root of bitterness, it refers to this idolatrous elevation of the self over the church. Okay? It refers to a dangerous pattern that prefers to dwell on injury, that prefers to dwell on inequality and evidence rather than the grace of God. And it can become belligerent if it's allowed to take root, if that cycle is allowed to go, it can become entrenched. And because it's poisonous, because it's bitter, it's dangerous. And it needs to be addressed. It needs to be carefully rooted out. And if it's allowed to be tolerated, if it's allowed to be tolerated, many will be defiled. It will become a barrier. How do we address the root of bitterness? How do we root it up? The first suggestion I have here is that we learn to recognize the signals. Right? Learn to recognize the signals. It takes courage. It takes courage to acknowledge when this pattern is getting started. And it can be disheartening to acknowledge it if we've experienced bitterness or resentment before, it's, it's not easy to say, oh, here it is again. So it's easier to overlook it. It's easier to overlook it, just like it could be easier for a while to overlook Montiflora Rose. But take the long view. Recognize the pattern. Take the long view. How much good does it do to let Montiflora Rose just take over while you look the other way? At the same time, you know, you, you recognize these signals, but there is wisdom here. You have to, you have to be wise with yourself and wise with especially other people, uh, knowing when to say something, somebody else, when to ask for help, uh, knowing when to identify this in somebody else so much the more. Is it, so learning when to do that is learning how to be wise. We, we want to do that. We could all use more wisdom. But I like to think, I like to think that when, when God shows us that there's the possibility of resentment in our hearts, when he reveals that this pattern is starting in us, a lot of what he's doing is a work of grace, okay? Because the sooner we root up the root of bitterness, the sooner we do that, the sooner we can love him, the sooner we can love our neighbors. It's going to be good for us. So I like to think that when we're alert to resentment, when we can recognize its signals, um, it's just one way that God alerts us that there's been some kind of injury. And the sooner God alerts us that there's been an injury, the more gracious is being with us. We could push around on this. Okay, We could push around on this. Just bear with me for a little while yet. <clears throat> So see what you think of this. It was uh, in 1729, Joseph Butler, he was a 
preacher at this point, and wow, you want to read a sermon about resentment <laughs> or the root of bitterness, he did a series on it. Um, he, he, he thought that the feeling of resentment is a natural response to receiving some kind of injury. That feeling of it, the first brush of resentment, just a natural response. So the first brush of resentment, he says, is God's good gift. It's just like pain. It lets us know that there's been an injury, real or perceived. It lets us know that, and it protects us from a world where we're going to be hurt. There will be injuries, and we need that. We need that there to help us know something's happened. There's been an injury. Pay attention. You can think of it like a push to pursue justice when otherwise we'd just be too weak or cowardly or lazy to go after that. But, and this is important, but like any gift, resentment is subject to abuse. And it tends to be abused. And because of that, resentment might tell us there's been an injury, but it must end. It must end. For most of us, there's just nothing that sticks harder in our memory than rankling resentment of some kind of old injury or injustice. And the more frequently we return to that resentment, the more frequently we rub up against it and cultivate it, the harder it's going to be to overlook. It must end. We must learn how to forgive. And forgiveness is the end of resentment. So that's the first thing. And again, we could push around on that. What, that's the purpose of resentment is that it, it just, it's just like pain. It just tells you there's been an injury. And you don't want to try to live life without pain. It's not going to go well. <laughs> You'll end up with all kinds of injuries that accumulate. And, well, that's, that's leprosy. Um, it's like that. So we must learn to forgive I'm going to go on in a little bit of a limb here, too. And I'll claim that we've heard this phrase sometimes, forgive. What's the kind of forgiveness that allows us to break out of the root of bitterness? We've heard that phrase, forgive and forget, right? And that means the way to forgive is to stop remembering that some kind of injury ever happens. And it's true to a, to a degree that with time, the sting of injury deadens. And that's, that's a gift. That's good. But the limb I'm going out on is this, that we best forgive by proper remembering. Okay? We best forgive by proper remembering. And here's the limb I'm standing on. I think I'm standing on something. Before we're called to watch out for the root of bitterness in Hebrews, before we're called out to watch out for, we're called to call on each other and to help each other remember the grace of God. Okay. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. The problem is the root of bitterness. Our response is forgiveness. The context where this root of bitterness will be uprooted, where it won't be nourished, where it's going to wither up, where it will be uprooted and carried away, that's the grace of God. Obtaining the grace of God requires 
that we remember. We don't remember the injury. We remember the grace of God. We have to remember that all of us are being treated unfairly. That's grace. Being treated unfairly. And this is something we remember when we say together, like we sometimes do, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We know. We know we are debtors. We have injured We've injured God. We've injured others. And we acknowledge this, that we are debtors in the same moment we acknowledge our unforgivable debt to God. We have a debt. And obtaining the grace of God means at least that God holds our injuries against us no longer. what grace means. God knows that we've offended. God knows that we've injured. And he knows how to identify injury against himself without pretending it's something else. So one who forgives, one who forgives knows the other's offense to be offense. It knows injury to be injury. It knows inequality to be inequality. It doesn't have to harbor evidence. But it knows that if there weren't injury, there wouldn't be the beginnings of resentment. There would be nothing to forgive. Okay. So I'm suggesting here that for Christians, forgiving and uprooting the, bitter, the root of bitterness isn't just overlooking the injury. It's not always just covering it over and saying there was nothing there. Sometimes it's appropriate to do that. Be wise. Be wise. But but it's more about bringing it, about bringing the injury into the grace of God. It's remembering that we, both the forgiver and the forgiven, both of us, are both being treated unfairly. That's grace. And this is the engine room of any kind of Christian community because Again, this is where Hebrews, he understands where there's going to be Christian community. We've got standards. We've got expectations for each other. We're going to hurt each other sometimes. Sometimes there's going to be real inequality. And sometimes they can get tired of this. But it's right here in the engine room of our communities in this never-ending cycle of forgiveness where we've got to involve each other in this process, sometimes two people, sometimes three, sometimes even more, of saying to each other things like, I think I've injured you. I feel like I've wronged you. Can you forgive me? Or, I feel like you've injured me. I've harbored evidence. I want to move on. In that prayer that we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, it's not just the report of something in the past that we've done once. It's right there in the engine room. It's something we do and we cultivate the posture we take. It's an attitude we commit to. And it happens 
as we remember our unpayable debts to God and his grace. And, and our willingness to live this all out, to pray that prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, a willingness to live that out, it, it determines the nature of our community. What kind of community will us be like? Will the root of bitterness take root here or will it not? And it determines the readiness with which a root of bitterness takes root in our hearts too. So be merciful with tender hearts, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. I'd like to end tonight with four practical pointers. Those pointers are like this. Identify the barrier, that's the root of bitterness, still continuing Try to say, what's the bridge past? What's the bridge through it? The first thing to remember is this. Remember first that the first brush of resentment is only a signal that there's been some kind of injury. Don't make too much out of it. It's only a signal that there's been some kind of injury, real or perceived. Remember this. Remember that the first signal is incomplete. Okay? That's all it is. Just a signal, but it's incomplete. All this means, if you feel that resentment coming up, all this means is that you have a role to play. Okay? It's a call for you to do something. So this is your invitation. When you feel that, it's your invitation to follow up, to pursue, to pray, to ask God to help you understand what's happening here. Was this a real injury? Do I need to learn something about myself? Do I need to have a conversation? But it's your signal, pay attention. This is your invitation to act. A second practical pointer is that you should be ready to communicate what you need. This is, this is one I put in here for myself, mostly, and for any other person who has trouble, um, first of all, identifying what we need, much less communicating that to somebody else. Because, you know, when you communicate it to somebody else, they may or may not meet that need, and then you'll be disappointed. And that's not fun, so why even bother? So that one's mostly for me, but, but I'm saying it's a good idea. Be ready to communicate what you need. We need to take responsibility for communicating with others rather than making the other person responsible for figuring out what we think we need. That's a setup for resentment if you just always assume it's their job to figure out what I want, what I need, and if they can't figure that out, well, fooey on them. That's... That's a setup for resentment. We have to take some responsibility there. Third, don't let the evidence build up. Don't let it just build up and build up and build up. And we've got some awareness of when we're obsessing here usually. So pay attention to that. Don't let that build up. Address things as they come up. That takes courage. But address them as they come up. The sooner the cycle is broken, 
the shorter the route. And finally, finally this, recognize that ultimately our hunger to have what other people have and our wish that they'd give it to us, that hunger can only be satisfied by God. And the sooner God frees us of this burden of relying on other people to get things that only he can give us, the sooner he frees us of that, the more merciful he's being on us. That's worth repeating, I think. The, the, the sooner God frees us of the burden of relying on other people for what we can only get from him, even if it's resentment he uses to get us here, the more merciful he's being on us. And when we see it that way, when we see it that way that ultimately we Hearts must find their rest in God, not in each other. When we see it that way, this allows us to keep our expectations a little more realistic with each other, I think. In other words, I can't count on you to give me everything I need. Neither can you count on your spouse to give you everything you need. You can't. You can't. That's something God can do. Because often we come to our relationships with some kind of preset idea of how our needs are going to be met. And, and when they're not met, well, guess what? Now we're injured, right? And then we could start to gather evidence. Or we could forgive. We could bring ourselves to God. And then we've got permission to explore other things this person really has to offer. And finally, when you see things this way that ultimately we're only satisfied in God, um, it allows us to learn ways and it allows us room to compromise. Okay. Name what's been disappointing. Name the injury. Name the patterns of inequality if you feel like they're there. It might be possible to eliminate the injury just by eliminating some of the sources of injury. For example, you know, a wife, she resents her husband because he gets the shower dirty may or may not be true. Compromise might mean the husband showers downstairs and cleans his own shower. It's not ideal, but it works. It removes the source of injury. And when you work through things that way, and when you work together and you find compromises, there's some things, obviously, I'm not saying there's some things you can't compromise on. There's some things you can't compromise on. But I'm saying sometimes there's space to work on compromises. And when you do that together, it tends to strengthen the relationship. It's a scary process, but it tends to strengthen the relationship overall. Okay, that's the root of bitterness. We've identified it. I hope we've had a few ways of finding our way, bridging our way through the root of bitterness. And uh, let's pray together.